What's up, everybody? This is FTW with the ModCon. I'm your host, ModCon, and joining me today is Barry Lee, Director of Esports at Evolve Talent. Hey, thanks for having me on. And later on, we'll be joined by Complexity Gaming founder and CEO, Jason Lake. On today's show, we'll talk about the struggles facing esports teams in 2020 with coronavirus, Black Lives Matter protests, cancelled events, and the ongoing claims of sexual harassment and discrimination in gaming. But first, Valorant. A new report by Graham Ashton of the Esports Observer claims that Valorant teams are spending between 15 to 25,000 on five team player salaries per month, meaning that on the high end, players would be making up to $5,000 a month. While these aren't Counter-Strike numbers by any means, it does put it on par with the Overwatch League salary base of $50,000 a year. It is well below the salary base of LCS at $75,000 a year. So Barry, as someone who's negotiated salaries for players across a wide variety of games, do you think the reported salary average for Valorant is appropriate? That actually sounds about right to me. Um, We've been seeing a lot of salaries at the agency side um, between 3K a month to about 5K a month, which equates to about 36,000 to 60,000 a year. And really just depends on how much the team is willing to spend, how good they feel the players for their brand. Um, Obviously, we've seen some superstar deals on our end as well, but those are like kind of the big outliers. The bulk of the players seem to be signing contracts where where it's mostly three to five K. And the players that are getting these superstar deals, are they the ones that were former Counter-Strike players or maybe in one instance, a former Overwatch League player? Well, I mean, like some of them were former Overwatch players. I don't know if any former Counter-Strike players have signed like a superstar deal just because I don't know what's going on with uh, on the 100T side of things. But yeah, like these are players that have already some sort of brand exposure and some sort of like kind of following before they kind of signed on to Valorant or switched over to Valorant. Mm. You know, I think the one that everyone was paying attention to is... Uh... Sinatra, right? Because he was already one of the highest paid players in the Overwatch League. And then when he decided to leave the San Francisco Shock and go over to Sentinels there, I mean, how much do you think, like, do you think you would be getting a pay bump? So Sinatra is signed with our agency and we did that deal. So I can't really say the details of that deal, but it was, it was, it, it was a good deal. That's the most I can say. So then, you know, we also get some of the viewership numbers that Valorant is getting. Obviously, its initial beta launch had crazy numbers. And some people attributed that to, like, the artificial inflation because they were giving up beta keys based on people who were, who were watching. But now that we've seen some kind of unofficial events, the viewership has kind of hovered around Overwatch numbers a little less in the 50,000 viewership mark. Do you think that it's still too early to be playing armchair analyst and uh, say that, you know, th- this game has no future yeah i think it's way too early because um because i think when you looked at the t1 uh invitational like did actually quite well viewership wise from what i recall mm-hmm. um a lot of the kind of people are saying that like oh yeah valorant viewership is already dead and the game hasn't been out for like what a month now so it's like i think it's way too soon and it's also like a lot of these tournaments are like no name companies with no name players playing for like two three thousand dollars you can't really put too much stock in these numbers i think what you really need to see is if if there's any like big content creators at the moment that are gonna kind of like make a living off of valorant i think the game it's only been out a month i think it's gonna take some time for the scene to kind of establish itself because the thing is even though numbers like you said were great during the beta initial beta launch that was also because everyone wanted a key and you know have the clout of being in the beta So, like, yeah, it was definitely inflated, but um, I think we're starting to see it level off and kind of stabilize. Um, In terms of, like, the esports side, I think we just have to wait and see until there's, like, a real esports scene. Because no matter what people say, like, there haven't been any real esports circuits and 
competitions, to be honest with you. When competition does kind of ramp up and when there is kind of like an official league, have you guys started projecting what do you think viewership would be like? Like, would it be on par with an Overwatch league or would it be more on par with like an NBA 2K league or maybe even a Counter-Strike? I think it really comes down to how the viewership experience ends up being for Valorant, right? We don't do projections like that on our end from the agency side. We just look at what the teams are paying really uh, for (laughs) players like that. But if I had to kind of guess, I would say, I mean, beating Overwatch numbers doesn't seem like a huge challenge right now anyways. I mean, I I would say like, you know, once there's like a regular circuit, like some sort of like even like Counter-Strike style open tournament circuit rather than a specific league type circuit, I would expect it to at least like, you know, pull in Overwatch-ish numbers and then see where it goes. Like, I I think there's going to be enough interest. The game is fairly easy enough to follow. Like the biggest complaint about Overwatch was how unwatchable it was for the spectator. And because... Valorant is a lot more slow paced than Overwatch is, is not as much crazy movement. As long as they get the spectator client working a lot better than it is, I think it should be fine. So, you know, assuming they do adopt like a franchise league model similar to like the LCS and, you know, they have rules in place, what do you think the starting salary base would be? Do you think it would be similar to the Overwatch league at 60,000? No clue. I would imagine it's going to be at the very least 40,000 to 50,000 somewhere in that range just because of legal issues <laughs> like uh, w- mm. regarding minimum wage and all that stuff if, especially if, if the teams bring on players as the uh, w2 employees but as what a league mandated or like a competition for me to mandate thing if it ends up being like a kind of open circuit like counter-strike is like just tournaments here and there like there's not gonna be a minimum salary in my opinion but if it ends up being a more structured league type format like how league of legends and overwatch is then the league can mandate one, but will there be a set minimum salary and what would what will it be? It's like way too early to say. So when it comes to the actual, you know, league itself, so you know, we've seen the tournament series that was between T1 and Nerd Street Gamers, you know, uh, and you said that, you know, overall the viewership was good. What areas do you think other than just, you know, the overall viewership experience that like tournament organizers will need to do to create a more compelling product that might end up on a television like an ESPN or TBS? Well, story is always the big thing, right? When you have these competitions, you need to build a story around the competitors, teams, Like I said, it's too early for anything like that to have really happened beyond like, oh, yeah, this player came from, you know, Overwatch. This player came from Counter-Strike and they look really good. And beyond that, you're not going to really have any good storylines right now. So I think initially, while everything's still being set up, like you you got a lot of players kind of feel it out, trying to be the first first to market try to be the biggest name first so we'll see where it goes it seems like there's a lot of good teams but also like nobody's really figured out valorant quite yet and i also think like even though the re- official release has happened it's still gonna be a ways off from being in its final esports form hmm. you know while i have you and before i let you go i do want to talk to you about uh Ninja and the whole situation with Mixer. So, you know, earlier this week, Ninja jumped on YouTube, did not make a specific announcement that he was going to start streaming on YouTube exclusively. Rod Slasher Breslau did say that, you know, he is currently still negotiating with uh, different streaming platforms and whatnot. You know, I do want to ask you, is kind of the era of streaming platforms trying to buy up high volume streamers, is, is that kind of flirtation completely over now? No, I mean, you still got YouTube with a healthy viewer base. You still got Twitch, who's still number one. 
like live streaming on YouTube has been growing significantly the past couple of years. So they're a real threat. So like is, you know, is the whole thing about platforms giving high viewership content creators exclusive deals a thing of the past no like you still got competition between two players right what the scene really needs is a third or fourth like a platform to come in to really shake things up and really create some fierce competition because at the end it's only better for the content creators and it's only better for the viewers that that kind of happens you know you saw the whole thing with mixer where they threw in a bunch of money like it took youtube like years like at least like three years of just kind of building their like live streaming platform in order to get to the point where they are now and mixer try to do that in six months to go back to your question like i don't think these platform deals are dead i think in fact with just you know two competitors going head to head it might even get more fierce to be honest with you interesting interesting so and from what you're suggesting you're saying that like that third platform probably will not be facebook gaming the thing is facebook live streaming is funny because it's more like instagram right i mean instagram is owned by facebook but like it it Mm-hmm. To me, it feels more that way because Instagram is about documenting your life. Facebook is about documenting and sharing your life, right? So it's not mm-hmm. the thing that people go to right off the bat in order to kind of say, I'm going to game and stream on here. That, that's just not the audience for it. When people go onto YouTube, they're there for a bunch of different content, but there's a hefty gaming you know section to youtube right so it is a natural progression to go from watching ninja's video youtube videos to watching ninja live stream on youtube right that's not too big of a jump none of that kind of base level content exists on facebook because i don't think a lot of streamers curate their facebook communities quite as uh as thoroughly as they do as their twitch and youtube communities so it's just a matter of like kind of where the what the platform is being used. If I think if Facebook encourages that kind of community engagement and stuff like that around gaming first, then they can start to see a uptick in kind of like the uh, live streaming component. But as it is right now, it's like it's a platform. I'll say that. Like, <laughs> And with that, Barry, thank you so much. Yeah. No, thanks for having me on. And now I'm joined by Jason Lake, founder and CEO of Complexity Gaming. In 2017, it saw major investment from Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, which put it under the Cowboys family and moved operations to Frisco, Texas. Clearly, 2020 has been a tumultuous year. From being on the brink of armed conflict with Iran to the coronavirus, to nationwide Black Lives Matter protests, and it's also an election year. Running a major esports organization in the hotspot of a global pandemic must not be easy. So Jason, with all that said, what has been the most challenging part of 2020 in regards to running complexity? You know, that's a great question. And I I chuckle a little bit because it's almost like, well, what week are we talking about? Right. It feels like almost every week there's a new challenge. It started with us um, in our Counter-Strike, which is our primary division, um, ending up kind of stranded in Europe. We went over to play a tournament and we were planning on coming back. And then we kind of had to make the decision. Are they going to stay there? Are they going to come back to America? And it's pandemic everywhere. And it was, you know, blowing up in Italy. And we are in Madrid. And that started blowing up in Madrid. So they went to Copenhagen. Um, so we had a lot of logistics issues, as many companies like ours probably had in the beginning. The airlines are changing, everything else. And then, of course, the laundry list of things that, that you rattled off. Since that time, this is a really challenging time, I think, for our country. And there's been a lot of conversations had. I think there's been a lot of frustration. We had the protests, and, and some of them took a more violent turn. And 
It's it's been difficult. I'm the kind of person I try to look at, at the world through a cup half full lens. And, you know, I, I think it's good to have these conversations. I think it's important that we're always seeking to improve and to stand up for all all different people. And, uh, you know, in the gaming world specifically, it's been challenging where there's been a lot of allegations and just a lot of cleaning of the gaming house, I guess you could say. I think we've all done a little bit of soul searching and, and looked at our ecosystem and, and asked ourselves, how can we improve this? How can we stand up for the voices that might not be the loudest? And, and how can we stand together to make things better? You know, gaming is meant to be a fun place, a place of joy, a place of community, a place of common experience in these video digital titles that we love. So how can we improve that? So I do think it's healthy. And in, despite the pandemic, you know, you hate to gloat, but despite the pandemic, esports specifically has really been doing very well in that we can still compete where traditional sports are, have been sidelined. So we've seen record viewership across streams and, and, and gameplay time and other things. So, you know, like I said, you hate to gloat during such a time when so many people are suffering, but I like to look for the positive. I like to look for the good. And, and there is good to be found in gaming and esports despite the challenges. So in regards to the social movements that have been happening, especially the one a few weeks back talking about sexual harassment and assault happening within the video game space. I mean, what are some of these conversations you've been having with your players and your team? You know, it goes back for us to our core values. And we certainly don't hold ourselves out to be perfect. But the core values of complexity for many, many years now, 17 years old, have been integrity and, and fairness and goodness and treating people like you want to be treated. You know, like any group of people in a corporate environment and in stressful, competitive environment, you know, we make mistakes like everybody else. And, and we try to own up to those mistakes. But I think what we've always tried to get across to the people that join our gaming family, even before recent events, is there certain ways to conduct yourself in the ecosystem. And we have a low tolerance for any acts of, of racism or misogyny or anything like that. And, and that's going back well before this. So more than like trying to rewrite our core ethos, I think we've tried to reinforce it and, and really stamp it home and, and have internal conversations about these important matters. Certainly don't pretend to have all the answers. There, there's been just a, a confluence of a painful, heartbreaking stories. Um, but I think it's important that we have these conversations. I think gaming has always tried to stand up in some way for minority communities and for different communities that, that mainly ignored in, in the mainstream. I think gaming's always kind of been on that cutting edge. Like, let's do it better. Like, let's have a, let's give these people a voice. You know, this might be a, t a tough question to ask, but like, let's roll back to 2017 with some of the... the Kaepernick kneeling protests that were happening within the NFL. Now the NFL is completely done like this huge about face where much like NASCAR, they're saying like, hey, we need to really reevaluate how we were approaching this. Jerry Jones, he kind of took this uh, interesting approach where he did kneel before like the, the anthem, but also was pretty strict and saying that like his players uh, should probably stand for while, while the anthem is being said, which did cause some controversy. So, I mean, what were some of like these internal conversations going on over at Complexity? These issues are complex and, and definitely worth discussing. Uh, like we talked about before the show, it might be difficult to really dive into them given our time constraints. 
But I think it's important that that we as a, a, a culture, we as a nation, and even more specifically the gaming community, we have these conversations. We need to work on our empathy. We need to work on our compassion. We can't stand idly by why any subset is treated unfairly or treated lesser because of qualities um, like their skin or their sex or whatever it might be that have nothing to do with the content of their character. So I think these conversations are healthy. I'm an optimist, and I believe on the other side of this painful time, we're going to come out better. We're going to come out stronger. I hope we've opened the eyes of a, of a lot of people. Yeah, and, and I think when this is all behind us, we're going to look back, and this will be remembered as a transformational um, time in our history. Mm. You know, can you recall a situation in which maybe a player or a team member came up to you saying that, hey, you know, I feel that uh, something that's happened to me isn't fair, isn't right, um, you obviously don't have to go into the specifics, but kind of what was like the internal mechanisms happening complexly that tried to deal with that situation, if such a situation has ever occurred? I mean, over the years, we've had uh, different situations arise when you go through, you know, hundreds of gamers and support staff over 17 years. One that jumps to my mind was not too long ago. We, ha- we had a very young, fairly inexperienced, but extremely talented player in Southeast Asia that was in a server and was joking with some of his other Asian friends, but the words he was using to joke um, were considered in that region to be very offensive. You know, it it was not well received, rightfully so, and we immediately needed to terminate his contract because of the mistake he'd made, because what he'd said was completely unacceptable, even if you were quote-unquote joking. And his contract was terminated, and his career, you know, was pretty sidetracked by that. But it was a painful lesson for young people that you are responsible for the words you use and the things that you say, and and those types of ap- actions do have repercussions. Team owners generally have to come from an era of like being the responsible person in the room, being the the adult in the room. Um, whenever you do have an instance of a younger player who does say things or act in a certain way, is there that tension between saying that oh we should terminate this person or that we should try to you know, teach this person, try to help them become better. There absolutely is because any leader worth his or her salt understands that we all make mistakes. We have all said things we wish we could take back. And anyone who says they haven't is not being honest or they're, you know, they're just deluded. So when you have, especially like younger players that don't have that experience in the public eye, make those mistakes. You try to teach, take each incident and, and weigh the sum of its parts. And you hate to just drop the ax and be like, I'm sorry, we need to let you go. Um, but there's so many different factors that go into each instance and exactly what happened and what went on. Um, it is difficult. And I think also as leaders, we need to be honest with ourselves that we've made mistakes. Most of the good leaders I know have probably made more mistakes than the people they lead because the wisdom gained through those mistakes is a reason they're an effective leader. So, you know, I think we have to have empathy and we have to have understanding. Sometimes, you know, when you're running a company, you just have to do what you have to do. But I would hope that a leader would take that person aside on the way out and be like, hey, you know, I believe in you and I believe in your future. Like you made this mistake and and there are consequences, but you can do better and you can resurrect, you know, your career or whatever was affected and move forward. We shouldn't just toss people to the side. You know, I think maybe rehabilitates a, a strong word, but, you know. We, we should try to help them improve um, despite whatever corporate decisions need to be made at the time. Mm. So, I mean, I know with like the case of Al Franken, when he had to 
resigned from the Senate following allegations that were made against him. And, you know, he was arguing that, you know, instead of forcing me to resign, let's just have an investigation. Um, and then now in 2019, 2020, you know, some of the senators that really pushed for him to resign say that they f- felt that they acted too quickly or too in haste. Um, have you ever had, you know, in those instances where you've had to like, tell a, a player to, you know, that we're canceling your contract or you have to step down, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, years later, were there those feelings of regret? You know, I just had an incident like that yesterday, so you're lucky. (laughs) (laughs) We had an incident where someone tweeted that our in-game leader in our Counter-Strike team had called them um, a very inappropriate word. I don't even know how to say it, you know. Um, But the audio on the Twitch clip was muffled, so I went to him, and I was pretty irate. And I was like, look, I I think I know what this says, and this is a big, big issue. And I'm like, I'm going to take a deep breath and we're going to weigh what's going on and, and try to get more evidence here. But this is a big problem. And I was pretty upset. And then, thank goodness, he actually had a recording of the exact same moment in, in, during this scrim match. And his audio was better. And he did not say what the original audio um, sounded like and what the person was tweeting on Twitch that he or on Twitter that he had said. So I had to kind of eat crow and go back to him and say like, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry. I came off a little heavy handed. You know, you didn't say it. And uh, I'm sorry. Right. So sometimes I do think there are incidents where it pays to take a deep breath, not just knee jerk reaction. Try to give people the benefit of the doubt and, and gather evidence. I almost made um and said some drastic things based on iffy evidence, and that would have been a mistake. So I'm glad that I didn't take it further because when the real evidence came out, we got better audio. It was like, oh, that's not at all what he said. So, uh, yeah, that was just yesterday. So welcome to the world of management in esports. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, I'll try to finish it off on this last question. You know, ESPN and the Washington Post put out a report earlier this week about, you know, the teams that took out some of the PPP loans. Like, you know, they reached out to United, they reached out to Sentinels, and I think when people hear that, oh, X team took out a certain or asked for a a loan during the middle of a global pandemic, it's disingenuous what they're doing. But then when you listen to kind of what Sentinels is saying, is that, you know, we had all these sponsorship deals lined up and guess what? Like all these events were canceled or pushed back. So these deals just didn't go through. And it's, it's actually a lot more complex than maybe what the media is making it out to be. So in regards to the the loans that was, were taken out by complexity, do you think that it is being too simplified and that there is, on the management side, that there's a lot more to consider when, you know, just lobbying criticism? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good question. It's a fair question. Um, and it is complex, even for complexity, get it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, as publicly released, you know, um, we did participate in the program. I really don't have any... Um, comment beyond that but i do think these situations are complex and like we just discussed i think it's dangerous to take knee-jerk reactions when you when you don't know the whole story but for this case you know i don't don't really have any more to say on it but i think it's a fair and interesting topic Mm -hmm. do do you think like you know once maybe the pandemic is over and we're all back to normal there could be more honest conversations about you know the companies that are, you know, looking for these programs and, you know, just trying to have that more honest conversation about, hey, this is how kind of the business is run. And um, maybe for some companies, maybe criticism should be a lot, but for others, like we should take a step back and try to consider, you know, exactly everything that's going on. 
Yeah, possibly. I think there's going to be a lot of interesting discussions when the dust settles from this surreal year. It feels like we're living in a movie and, and people are doing the best they can to make the best decisions they can and in a type of situation that none of us have lived through before. And we're going to all have hindsight 2020 vision looking back on this year um, for the, the rest of the time we're on this, this green earth of ours. But um, I think it'll be interesting when we all can look back and I just wish everyone the very best uh, while we all get through this together. And, and while we do our best to treat each other well and, and survive the craziness that is 2020. Yeah. You know, I, I missed the, the Tiger King portion of this pandemic where it was a bit lighter. <laughs> <laughs> Right. It started out kind of funny, right? Yeah. And it's just yeah. got got tough. Mm. Well, Jason, I look forward to when that time comes where you and I can meet once again at a competition and just have, you know, just let things be normal again. Absolutely. Uh, with that, thank you so much. Thank you. And that was FTW with the ModCon. If you like the show, please rate, share and subscribe. Your support will help the show continue to grow. If you'd like to follow Barry on Twitter, he can be found at Edelweiss, that's E-D-E-L-W-E-I-S-S. If you'd like to follow Jason and everything going on with Complexity Gaming, he can be found on Twitter at Jason B.W. Lake. If you'd like to follow me and my writing over at the New York Times, the Washington Post, and elsewhere, I'm at Imad on Twitter. Annie Pay is our producer. Any questions about the show can be directed to her at Pay underscore Annie on Twitter. Our outreach manager is Joe Domic, and our researcher is Ron Lyons. With that, we'll catch you guys next week.